stop sentence. That's a practice. I stop thinking in mid thought. That's one of the higher practices. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambutasa Aparuta de Sangamatasatawara ye sodawanta bamunjantu sadang. This is a very wonderful day to contemplate. Uh, I find it always inspiring to see uh, people committing themselves to the holy life. I remember when I became a monk, I ordained as a summonera in Thailand in 1966. And I thought then, because I was always a bit of a, uh, a loner, and I saw myself as an eccentric person that did things no one else would ever do. And so I didn't know any other Western man who would ever have ever conceived of becoming a Buddhist monk. So I thought, well, this is a one-off situation. I was quite resigned to uh, live my life in Thailand, uh, in remote, it was quite hermetic at the time, that you'd live in some remote mountain cave, some, some kind of jungly, place with just monkeys and birds and uh, just meditating on the sound of the rain falling on the leaves and romantic images from these Zen books I'd been reading, writing kind of haiku poetry, rain falls, mind stops, something like that. (laughs) And... uh, and then uh, a few years later, uh, Western men started coming to uh, Wapapong and Ubon, and, and I thought, they'll never stay. I mean, they just, you know, it's the hippie time. This was the late 60s, early 70s. It's the hippie time. The hippies just go around, you know, they try and become a Hindu for a while in India, and then they try on a Buddhist robe in Thailand. <laughs> And so when they stay, I was really surprised <laughs> uh, because I didn't 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 re- uh, didn't think anyone would be interested enough in the in meditation or living the holy life in in at least in the Buddhist context. And little did I think that I'd be living in in England, most unimaginable. I never thought in the wildest fantasies that I've had. Somebody said, you're going to end up as a Buddhist monk in Hertfordshire. Uh, that, that's, that, uh, that's really crazy. Uh, 
So you never know what's going to happen in your life, where the, the different forces that come together and, and uh, we find ourselves uh, living in ways that are quite, quite surprising in, in many ways to, to what we've expected from life. I've always found a strong longing, even as a child, to understand the purpose of my existence. Uh, because it always seemed so, so, to me very strange being a human being, and I didn't even figure out what it was, what it was all about, what it, what it was meant to be, and what the point of it is. Uh, going through life, just eating, sleeping, procreating, getting old, dying. <laughs> what, what's it for? You know, just we to, pro to procreate the species, maybe. Maybe that's all we're here to do is, is just have babies and, and keep the species, human species going. But that wasn't very satisfying. I didn't particularly want to do that either. So uh, I'm interested in just keeping the human species going, isn't that in itself? Uh, there was a prop, you know, that's about evolution. We're somehow evolving towards something, you know, in sort of the caveman into more civilized ways of conducting ourselves. But then, you know, I was a, I grew up during the Second World War, and I saw, I didn't see civilization acting in any particularly advanced way compared to the cavemen. <laughs> So uh, I gave up. <laughs> uh, the civilization doesn't really have very much depth to it, and at least the uh, Western civilization doesn't have, doesn't go very deep because <clears throat> certainly uh, can be quite, you know, uh, selfish and violent and and uh, commit atrocities and, and malicious evil forces. What was the evil force? You know, you could, I could feel that in myself. As much as I wanted to be good, I also had these other drives, you know, anger and resentment, hatred and jealousy and fear. And, and so these, these kind of emotions would, would come up in my mind and, and I was told that you just tr try to get rid of them. Just try to fight, you know, fight off the evil forces. So in, in that way, life do, does become an endless struggle where you're fighting against evil and, and uh, after a while it all becomes quite meaningless because uh, it seems like it, the very act of fighting uh, seems to increase the forces. Uh, so in that way, it, it was it became apparent that, that th there were other ways of looking at life that I wasn't that I had not been introduced to yet, that I didn't understand. And when I came across Buddhism, when I was about 21, uh, it was in Japan, I was in the, the Navy, something struck me and something uh, reached me very profoundly in the, this more reflective style of Buddhist, Buddhist teaching. And this I, I really I had a, an intuitive uh, understanding of this, uh, this kind of reflection or contemplation or uh, meditation, looking, looking and observing, witnessing uh, and watching.
in uh, my life as a monk, this, is, this has been, you know, very um, something that I've, I've really uh, enjoyed doing. The monastic life, to many people, Buddhist monasticism looks like hardship because they say, you say it's a renunciate practice. There's a renunciation, you live by all these disciplinary rules and moral precepts and and uh, you have to shave your head and wear uh, these kind of robes all the time, and it's, uh, it looks, you know, to the average person uh, like, a, a, like a kind of volunteering for hardship and for making life difficult. But actually, it's, it, rather than seeing renunciation as kind of a, um, a slap at the world by saying all those things, Pleasures and that are bad, and we shouldn't have anything to do with them. It's, it's, it's not a, a rejection of of uh, the world, but a simplification, moving toward a, a very simple way of living and and even a simple way of thinking and a way of understanding, not through grasping ideas about life or about ultimate reality or anything like that, but in really a, an, an insightful understanding, something that comes from, from your gut, something that is, is, is profound knowledge rather than just uh, cerebral uh, idealism or speculation. So in, in, in this, uh, at this time, with all the... The, the millennium, end of the century, end of the millennium, the beginning of the year 2000, the third millennium begins, uh, they say not really until 2001. I'm not going to quibble, I like three zeros. <laughs> and the, the letters from one changes to two, so you get year 2000 in, in just a couple of weeks. And to see the, the, you know, the, just in my lifetime, the amount of interest and commitment, even though compared to the world's population, it seems uh, rather insignificant in numbers. It's, uh, but it's still much more than, than, than I'd ever had expected. We have this life, it does seem like our human existence does have some purpose to it. It has something valuable about it. It's not just an empty kind of thing that we have to put up with and, and die just as ignorant and silly as we, we were when we were born. Uh, we, we do learn. We have the ability to learn from experience. We have the, a mind that that can stand back from even the, the body and the emotional habits we have. We can, we can witness to what's really happening in the present moment. That ability to wake up and look and observe just what you are feeling, no matter what it is. Uh, whether it's a good feeling or a bad feeling, or, or physical sensations, or moods, emotions, and even the body, as you do body meditation, contemplate, uh, mindfully witness to the experience of your own physical body in the present. 
You begin to understand your body much better. The body, if you really put forth the effort to, to be mindful of it, well, has its own intelligence and its own abilities to heal itself and to, to uh, and, and by looking at it in the right way, it, it, or if the body does begin to feel even happy and good, rather than just seeing the body as my body and I'm got, I'm, and just using it, exploiting it, and making it do what you want till it actually uh, starts uh, wearing out and you, then you have all kinds of other problems, pain and, and whatnot to deal with. So what the Buddha was pointing to was this opening of the heart. You can say that the opening of the heart isn't like open heart surgery. <laughs> it's not the physical heart, but but being able to open to the flow of life, to to watch and to to accept life as it is. And this acceptance doesn't mean approving uh, of life as it is or making any criticism or judgment of it, but because at this moment life is like this, my, my feeling, my mood, the state of my, the physical condition is like this, to want it to be something otherwise is, is, uh, is just creating suffering for myself. Because even if I'm sick and then I don't, and I hate to be sick, that is the suffering I'm creating around just the experience of illness. In a religious life, it is a, sometimes we have these, these attitudes about faith, and many Buddhists uh, have a kind of conceit that we, we're not faith types, we're wisdom types. You, know, you, you hear Buddhists saying, you know, faith people, you know, like the Christians, they're just faith. We, we, we develop wisdom, and the kind of conceit that, that we can have around uh, just the, our own sense of, uh, you know, holding up wisdom as something more advanced than faith. But in the long run, what I find is, is uh, the power of faith. And after all these years, 33 years is a month. <laughs> Uh, amazing thing, but in faith and wisdom they go together. There's not like one uh, it, it dominates and and one is more important than the other. But they actually uh, support each other. They complement each other. And well, I was one of those conceited type Buddhists. That I'm not a faith type. After 33 years, I I would describe myself as a faith type. Which is quite a surprise to me, because the, just seeing how it works over the years, the 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 effect that it's had, and the the results of living this life have been very, I've been very, you know, grateful and pleased with uh, with the results of living uh, as a Buddhist monk. It hasn't. For me, been a disappointment, or a, or in any way something that I regret having done. In fact, now I just uh, want to keep going to die in the world. This is a great dream of a 
of a Buddhist monk to die in the robe. In the last moments of consciousness, you have your three robes around you. Uh, that's very comforting. Three robes in your bowl, bowl sitting right next to you, and then you die. Well, I, I've, you know, I don't know where I'll be when I die, but anyway, that's, uh, I haven't any other plans for, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, to change my lifestyle. But, but it does, uh, one, one does appreciate this tradition very much because it is a very old tradition. It's uh, something, you know, when you think of the Lord Buddha, the historical Buddha, of India 2,543 years ago. And to us, uh, modern human beings, that's a long, long time ago. If you're American, it's really a long time ago. Americans, we, we live, everything's so new in America. At least in Europe, you do have a sense of antiquity, which we don't have in the States. But, but the... Uh, but even 2,543 years is not really very long. Uh, it's not really a long time. But, but to see a convention, uh, a religious convention, that has survived through the rise and fall of so many kingdoms and civilizations, and, uh, and then when you study the history of Buddhism, it's, you know, in some places it's been completely destroyed, and then it grows somewhere else. And during the 1950s and 60s, or 40s, 50s, and 60s, it looked to most of us like Buddhism was, was going to be wiped out in Asia, in the Buddhist countries. You watched China go communist. You saw uh, Japan become very, very materialistic. You saw, we saw the, the communists take over Vietnam, and Laos, Cambodia, and and uh, in 1936, the, the destruction of the monasteries in Mongolia. And then in 1959 and 60s of Tibet, you know, the destruction of the monasteries in Tibet. And it looked like, you know, like Buddhism was on its way out. Uh, and it was just being kind of, uh, you know, the last bits of it, what remained of it, were, were going. But then they find it reviving. Now you go, you hear in Mongolia, they're reviving Buddhism again. And in 1936, uh, Stalin had all the, the Buddhist monks murdered. They found these mass graves in Mongolia, which was a very powerful, strong Buddhist country following the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And, uh, and, and that was, I was born in 1934. Two years after I was born, they were, they were, you know, assassinating the, the Mongolian Sangha, and now that's reviving. And in Cambodia, it's reviving again. And in uh, China and places like this, that it somehow it, it can kind of have its low periods, and then it, but it survives. And the thing is that the pure teaching still is pure. When the kind of essential teaching of the Buddha uh, that he gave. It's, it hasn't been corrupted in any way. 
sometimes Buddhist institutions get corrupted, and uh, Buddhist monks and and Buddhist monasteries can get corrupted, but the actual teaching is is not corrupted. It's still exactly what it was at the time of the Buddha. At least in you know in, in the way in our uh, experience of it, Theravada Buddhism. So to me, that says a lot: the power of a, of a convention that that has this uh, survival ability and still speaks to modern to the needs of modern humanity. This is another very interesting thing to recognize that. Why do Western people, what do they see in Buddhism anyway that, that would make them take an interest? I mean, very few would just be interested in it anthropologically or culturally. There are a few Western people particularly interested in maybe Thai culture or Indian civilization, something like that. But, but the ones that really uh, want to practice are not particularly interested on, on that level, but on the uh, the uh, level of understanding the meaning of their lives, and the and to recognize the the human condition, which is the, the common factor that we all share with each other, and we share with all human beings from the beginning, uh, from the very beginning to the present, is the common experience of suffering. Well, this is uh, this Buddha pointed to this, made this in his in his first sermon after his enlightenment, his sermon of the four noble truths, and the first noble truth is the statement of this that there is this suffering. So it's uh, it's something that we can all relate to, isn't it? Even in an affluent and and well-run country like this one, I mean, no matter how affluent or well-organized it is, we still suffer. Even if this country were absolutely perfect, there's nothing wrong with it, we'd still suffer. We'd find something. So you say it's too perfect. So can people complain about Switzerland and it's too clean. It's too well, too efficient. So it, it's not just the, 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 you know, trying to create perfect utopian societies and and civilizations that were out there, but in using this experience of consciousness in a human form to understand, understand ourselves, and understand the experience of suffering that we all share with each other. When we when we look at each other in in the in, the, in this common bond that we share of suffering, then we we have a way of looking at each other that is compassionate rather than just caught up in envy, jealousy, resentments about um, who, who's high class or low class or male or female or black or white or anything like this. These, these kind of factors, uh, ethnic biases, racial prejudices, they come out of ignorance. They come out of not understanding suffering. Uh, so we can, we can, and we create suffering all the time with our particular attachments to our own ethnic group or our own class or gender or social position or our resentments about uh, our inferior position or whatnot. 
So suffering, when we look at it, when we see that we suffer, and even like the Queen Elizabeth suffers, and the King of Thailand suffers, and, and uh, all the best, the richest, most beautiful, most gifted people suffer, as well as the, the poor. And this suffering is common to us all. Now the real suffering, there are some in our life, like the three uh, Bodhipala, Jitapala, and Vamangala, leaving the home life for the homeless life. And that means they're giving up their, their, their privileges, uh, like having their own money, having their own property. Uh, you know, having uh, all the things that that modern materialist uh, living standards say we should cherish and should seek after. We should have we should have all this money and and property and and insurance and guarantees for uh, comfort and safety for the rest of our life. And yet, what you saw today was a, a renunciation of that. That's as you think how irresponsible can you get? <laughs> so you, I mean, you should uh, think about, uh, you know, um, shouldn't be giving up these things because uh, you, that's been, you know, the, you, you've got to think of the future. But the holy life is an act of faith and an act of trust. And and the thing that I found is that that in, in my life as a as a Buddhist monk was that that uh, I wasn't quite all that aware when I became a Buddhist monk what I was actually doing. So I, <laughs> and suddenly I woke up one day and realized I was, you know, a penniless beggar. And, <laughs> and, I, had, and I had to spend my life trusting in the goodness of others. I thought, wow, you really, you really put yourself into a strange situation. You know, I was brought up in a very kind of materialistic attitude of, you know, look after yourself first. Make sure you've got yours. You're all right. Then you can start thinking about others. But the result of this life is is that it it does it, it, it the 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 goodness of this life is a blessing, and so it blesses us all the time. And people feel blessed by it, so that, that the centers like this, like Amavati arise in in the Chiltern Hills of Hertfordshire, a big Buddhist center, uh, and it was like this temple was 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 uh, was not, but didn't. Uh, it was based on free will donations, on offerings, not on all kind of fundraising and kind of bribing people into coughing up their money. Uh, or, or business practices to try to make money to to build it, but in just the goodwill that it that that it generates, or our lives as summoners uh, bring bring to to us. So, in many ways, there's the tremendous security in the life of insecurity. But then. We train ourselves not to take that for granted, never to misuse that, not to to think that that we deserve it or that our we, we've got to have the very best or that we become like 
a, a priesthood or like a, a kind of elitist group uh, because that's a misuse of the form. That's a, a betrayal of our life as a summoner because we're actually uh, mendicants depending on the good will of other people for our very survival like food and shelter, robes and medicine. So this is, this is, is very inspiring in itself, but to trust in it is, at first, it, it does seem, uh, when I first came to live in, in England, I remember, uh, many people thought it would never be possible, that, that you couldn't possibly uh, survive as an alms mendicant living here, because not even a Buddhist country. And so uh, I, I had, you know, uh, some uh, trepidations about coming out of a country like Thailand, where most, where 98 percent of the people are Buddhist, and you can take a lot for granted there, because uh, people are, have faith and they they understand what you're doing, and they respect what you're doing. But how can I expect that in a country like this? You know, this is my doubt. But then the teacher, Ajahn Chah, said, you know, wherever there are good people, you'll be able to live. You know, they don't have to be Buddhist. It's goodness, human goodness. And so I, this is what I've recognized in, in my life here in, in England for the past 23 years, is just the amount of goodness I've, I've, uh, I've seen around me. In the, in the people, in the situations that I've been in, and the, uh, you know, the generosity, and the caring, and the compassion, loving qualities, uh, that are a part of our humanity, and need to be, have, have, be, be made manifest, allowed to manifest, and not just be caught up in the selfish obsessions of modern materialism. When I think of my own cultural background, you know, even though I wasn't brought up to to be selfish as such, or but but the society I lived in was basically uh, self-centered. It was very much, as I said before, look after yourself and uh, don't depend on anybody. It's slightly cynical, my generation. We were quite cynical about the human nature. You know that basically it's corrupt and and you can't trust anybody. So so that was a, a kind of modern, uh, sophisticated with it attitude that I that I even subscribed to when I was in uh, university, uh, thinking that basically human nature is self-centered, selfish, and uh, you can't trust anybody. So you've just got to learn to look out for yourself. But then living in a monastic life in Thailand, I noticed that this wasn't the case, that that my experience, I lived in northeast Thailand, rather poor part of Thailand, wasn't the affluent part of Thailand. But there, even, even the poor people, even the the villagers, the uh, rice farmers and that, had a tremendous kind of uh, goodness to them, at least towards the monks, towards the 
generous offerings to the Sangha. And the kind of uh, interest and, and uh, quality of, of caring for you, looking after you, was, was very much uh, uh, quite, quite moved by it and, and appreciated it very much. But it quite surprised me in any way because I wasn't really expecting it. Well, then here in, in England also, uh, the same thing has happened in, in, a, in an affluent country. So this is a reflection on getting out of the, the kind of negative attitudes of the end of the millennium, end of the century. Uh, the last thousand years of European history has been amazing when you look at it, from 1,000 to 2,000, what all that has happened. From the kind of uh, days of, of the... Uh, the Holy Roman Empire the, in the uh, beginning of the second millennium and the, the, uh, the uh, destruction of, all, of paganism in Europe and uh, the kind of wars that brought Christianity into the dominant position, ruling position in, in most of uh, most European countries and then the development of that into uh, uh, these uh, powerful countries uh, producing, uh, discovering uh, North America and the development of the uh, Americas, destruction of the uh, Incas and the Aztecs and, and the complete takeover of North and South America by the white man. <laughs> and that's all been done in the past thousand years. And now we have this just in my lifetime, an incredible uh, kind of <laughs> development of, of technology. They were, you know, this, uh, you know I'm, I feel like what they call a dinosaur now because high tech has just has gotten way beyond me. And uh, it's, but when I see people doing with these computers and internet, it just boggles my mind. It's just not, I'm not prepared for that, actually. Uh, I'm not really interested in it, but it is amazing, you know, to to able to just push buttons and just have the, the kind of the world literally at your fingertips, and uh, anything you're particularly interested in want just by manipulating the 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 buttons on a computer, you can get it immediately. So it's like the wish-fulfilling dream, and everything you want, you get. But even then. What the, the problems now that you hear is, is the hissing sound of the word stress, that people's minds are not peaceful, they're not content, they're not at ease with life or themselves or with who they live with, uh, because the, the mind is forever being stimulated and excited, and that just creates this feeling of being stressed in this kind of attack on conscious experience, uh, this endless uh, excitement, stimulation, interest. The interesting thing about being a monk is, is that you, you like when the, the three uh, known Siddhadars, when they asked to, 
to be accepted into the Sangha, to realize Nibbana, cross over the stream of suffering to realize Nibbana, what does this mean? You know, is this just some kind of poetic image that we use, or does it, does it really mean something? So in uh, Buddhist meditation, what you're actually doing is learning to, to realize, recognize a stillness, an inner peace that's always with us all the time, but we don't notice it. And so we're, we're forever, you know, being distracted. And, and uh, the, the modern life at this time is such that the, the distractions are, are very intense. You know, there's just so many, so many exciting images. You don't have to be bored for very long. As soon as you get bored, a little weary of something, you can switch it on to surf the internet or do something like that. There's so many options and choices. But in the mendicant life, monastic life, what we're doing is we're going toward this boredom itself. We're, we're beginning to witness to it, to look at boredom and discontentment and restlessness and anxiety and worry in all these conditions. Looking at them not in terms of of trying to get rid of them, but of understanding them, learning from them, rather than just running away or dismissing or denying them. So this takes an attitude that is very different from, from the worldly attitude, which tends to just want to conveniently get rid of anything we don't like or don't want. So in monastic life you do, you go through periods of, you know, dreariness and boredom, sleepiness and dullness and despair and, and uh, all of that, uh, you know, you, you think would make you want to leave the life. But there's something that holds you to it until you, you, you actually learn from it and, and get beyond it get free from those kind of conditions that weigh you down, that cause this stress. So it is an enlightening experience. And when we talk about enlightenment, you think, what is that? And then, of course, we immediately think of it being some fantastic experience. You know, like, I used to imagine like being zapped by something, by a thunderbolt or, or some kind of blinding light like Paul on the road to Damascus, blinded by the truth or something, thinking of enlightenment as some kind of fantastic, powerful experience. But in terms of my own insights, living this life, it's like being able to see more and more clearly understanding more profoundly rather than blazing experiences and, and powerful kind of uh, uh, sudden rapturous uh, experiences what has happened more is an increasing understanding it's like you, the light that you can see with the right amount of light to see clearly know things as they really are, rather than, uh, like if you want to get blinded, just have somebody 
take a picture of you with a flash. You know, you, you look into the flash and it'll blind you. What is an enlightenment? <laughs> or you can gaze at the sun in mid-noon and, and ruin your eyes. Or is it the inner light, ability to use this conscious experience to be aware and awake, to pay attention to life? Now, in, in other words, sometimes we're accused by the world of being people who are uh, running away from reality. Um, they say we're, we, we refuse to live in the real world. We're running away from reality. Because to many people that, that seems like what we're doing. Like we, we can't take the, 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 the problems and difficulties of ordinary life and so we, we have to leave it to li live in these places like this where we somehow avoid it all. That's not what happens. <laughs> uh, you don't run, you don't get out of anything, but at least the, the convention here is one of turning your attention towards the suffering you're experiencing. It's pointing, it's directing your attention to look at yourself rather than, than just uh, blame your suffering on the external conditions, on the people you're living with, on the monastery you're in, on the country you're living in, on the weather, on the, you know, it's, uh, we tend to see suffering is caused from outside. But as we awaken more, as we begin to wake up and observe, we see suffering not, not as caused from outside, but something we create through our own ignorant reactions to this life uh, in a conscious form. So I want to reassure those of you who, like, uh, uh, Sister Bodhipala's relatives and friends, and Sister Jitapala's uh, friends, relatives, and and uh, Sister Jayamangala's uh, mother and and relatives and so forth. To uh, not see uh, these three nuns as kind of running away from anything, kind of trying to get out of anything, but actually. Uh, a very strong determination to wake up and learn from their lives in a very direct and very profound way. So, I offer this as a kind of something for you to contemplate for this afternoon and uh, to uh, uh, always find these... Uh, these uh, ordination ceremonies inspiring uh, because it, uh, there's something so so wonderful to me to see people at least trying, you know, to put some effort <laughs> and uh, and, to, uh, uh, and it is, uh, you know, and you think of especially the the renunciate part, and, then, and you see uh, young men and women. Giving up the pleasures of the sense world and uh, the opportunities for intimate uh, relationships and and fun-loving experiences uh, and and for the holy life, well, this you know really uh, impresses me as something you know recognizing how how difficult it is to you know how to give those things up, especially when you're young. Well, wait, wait till I'm 60 years old, then I'll do. 
<laughs> but to do it while you're still young is quite quite uh, quite a, a an interesting thing to do, and something that that to me is well worth it because it is a you know life, human life is quite short. And I look back now as you get older, it goes by very very fast, and. Uh, now a year is just like nothing. It just seems to snap of a finger. Two thousand next next snap will be two thousand one. <laughs> but the and so the, you you, know, you realize I'm getting old, and the the uh, you know life, the remaining years on this in this form are limited now. So when I look back, I I keep thinking. Of, I mean of. of how much I've learned, and and uh, how grateful I am for having such an opportunity uh, within the, my lifetime to have come across Buddhism, for one thing, to have come across a, a good teacher like Ajahn Chah, to have so much support from the Buddhist world, from the uh, Buddhist uh, the countries like Sri Lanka and Thailand, have been very supportive and encouraging for my spiritual development. And also in terms of um, here in, in living in, in Europe, the, the, uh, the, the openness, the tolerance, the, and the goodness that I've uh, experienced in this country. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon and now they can go and uh, greet the newly ordained sisters in the Salah, isn't it?